Welcome to Victory GP. We're excited you've joined us, and we hope you're impacted and inspired by today's message. And I'm, I'm so excited. I've had this word um, burning on my heart for the last three weeks. So even while we were on holidays, I've been meditating on it, which means literally it's a bit of a fire hose. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to just bring it down a little bit, and we'll stagger over a couple of weeks just to make sure that we get it all to not overdo it. But we're going to talk about touch the hem, taste the glory. Touch the hem, taste the glory. And um, it's a very interesting thing when you pause and you step away for a little bit and you, you have time to analyze. Has anybody, you've, you've taken a little bit of time away uh, just to, to get clear with your thoughts? And let's just face it, we've been through the season of all seasons. You know, the time where everything has been shaken, everything has been shifted, you don't even know necessarily what's, what's left, what's going on. A lot of us have gone down to our real, like, roots. Like, what do, I, what do I even believe about anything anymore? What do I want out of life? What do I want for my family? What do I want for my work, my job? I'm, you know, maybe it's just to pay the bills. Maybe it's more. Maybe I feel like something of significance is there. Maybe, dear God, just get me through this. Whatever it is, there's been a lot of contemplation, and so... From a church leader perspective, there's always a lot of contemplation uh, in the summertime anyway about where are we going in the fall? What are we going to do? Now, I'm not going to talk about fall. You do have four weeks left, I promise. But, no, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, we, we do have some stuff that we're getting into this fall, but one of the things that is so real on my hearts, and I know it is for you as families as well and as couples, is that I do not want, we do not want as a leadership team for us to just fall back into old ruts just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Just because somebody says we can, should we? Yeah. There's a difference between what is God's best for us and what is, you know, plausible. Some, what, what, what are we used to doing well? I, I have found that this year, you know, when you're, when you're going through a season of, you know, quarantines and limitations and, you know, you don't want to go to the grocery store too many times and whatever, you learn to think a little bit differently. Like you need to plan ahead and you only do what you want to do. Like, what's worth actually making the sacrifice for? What's worth actually investing in? And in the same manner, that's kind of the feeling with the, with the church. It's, God, what is it that we really want to invest in? What is it that's on your heart? And, and basically, um, any of the, you know, the leadership stuff, any of the plans, what are your goals, what are your targets, um, none of them really apply right now honestly. None of them really apply. It's not about how many seats can we fill in a building. How many services do we aim to have? I mean, there will be, there will be um, plans for that sort of stuff, but ultimately, what's the heart behind it? Why are we doing what we're doing? And, you know, people want to know, like, what, 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 are, the, what are the goals? What are the visions? What are, what's on your heart? And, and ultimately, for me, I feel like anything that falls into those categories right now, really, it comes back to either I want to be able to pat myself on the back because I did a good job or flog myself because I screwed up. But I want to be able to measure my success, right? We all, we, that's how we do life as humans. I need to know where the bar is so I can know, yay, I did good, or boo, I did bad, and now I'm not worthy. And really, when it comes right down to it, Jesus said it's all about him. So what is his goal? What is his desire? You know, we could, set, we could set goals. We want to see this many people come to Christ this year with this many salvations. But ultimately, the word tells us that the Father wants that none would perish. So that's a pretty high number. Like, you know, it's big, right? So um, what, what, where's the limit? There's nothing in the New Testament that really talks about seating capacities in church. It just says that the church growed and God added to their number daily. So I would say, essentially, we can have as many buildings as God intends for us to have. It's, it's really not a problem. There's a, the, the limit is not on man's limits. The limit is the bar that God sets for us. And so I come down to stuff like this. Matthew 25, I've been meditating on this, starting at verse 34. And this is, this is when we stand before God, right? Matthew 25, starting at verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to him, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. In other words, Jesus is saying that the ultimate well done is going to come from him. So whether I think I did a good job, whether you think you did a good job, whether, you know, analysts of businesses or churches or whatever think you did a good job is sort of irrelevant. Whether you think you did a lousy job, whether, you, you know, you think your business is failing, your church is failing, your family's failing, ultimately it's his well done. And he calls us into a simple calling. Two parts. He calls us, number one, to be his sons and daughters, and number two, to act like it. It's pretty much that simple. Profound, right? So we're not interested in like these deep, we, we're calling people into Christianity. No, we're calling people, we're presenting the opportunity to be number one, sons and daughters, number two, act like it. So that's the goal. That's what we're moving towards. That's the, the thing. And ultimately, you know, we were sitting with our family um, last week, first family reunion in a couple years, uh, all of Wayne's siblings and uh, between the bunch of us, what did we decide? It was 400 and 480 years of marriage or something between the whole lot. It's big family. Wayne and I are 30 this Tuesday, actually, which is amazing. I think that almost makes us experts, but um, I'm not sure. Definitely the Beliskis, you guys, you would be experts at this point. There's, there's a place. But, you know, we, we sat around together, and I know this is not common. I know many in this house are first-generation believers, Many are second generation believers. Some, you know, like you were a this morning believer. So it's brand, brand new. But the, the reality is over the course of time, like we sang this morning, I have seen the goodness of God. It takes sometimes generations for it to work itself out in us. And so sometimes there's a flow. But because we come from multi-generational believing families, we were sitting around and just saying, you know, it's so amazing how good God has been. It's so amazing that of eight siblings, everybody's still married. His, his parents are in, you know, the, the, the dozens and dozens and dozens of years of marriage. You know, it's, it's, there's been, um, you know, major miracles. There's been major breakthroughs. Everybody is being blessed and being prospered. And what it, it's so interesting to sit around with the family and realize that as well, looking around, it's not perfect. We have absolutely dealt with marriage issues. We have absolutely dealt with medical issues. We have absolutely dealt with relational issues. We've had, uh, you know, drug deaths. We've had all kinds of, you know, things that have gone off the rails. The difference is we all know exactly where to run when that happens. And our first call is God. Our second call is the family prayer line, and everybody goes to war together. And uh, when that happens, it's like this army shakes the atmosphere, right? And we, because we just know, like, yes, this is happening. We know God promised us that we will have trouble and tribulation in this world, but to take heart because he has overcome. And so when, when it becomes part of your DNA, it becomes the first call. It's like, we got this cancer report. We've got this going on. We've had this heart disease thing. We've had this. And so we go to war. And so we press into the presence of God. And so we declare by faith. And it's not, again, not perfect, but there is a clear answer. And so from that place, I believe, you know, it's, it's been a gift, you know, to our children and will be to our grandchildren now to come up in a family of faith where they know who they are and they can act like it, right? So my heart is that this house and any that we're called to reach, we will cut. And some, it's going to be the very beginning. Maybe you're coming just straight out of hell's breath itself. You know, you still got the stink on you. But so what? That's a first step towards freedom. And God will continue as we dig in, as we press in. He will continue to reveal to you who you are 
and what you're called to do. He's going to continue to reveal to you that you are a son or a daughter and you should act like it. And that's not about rules and regulations. That's about I get to. Because as sons and daughters of God, we get to say, well, no, my dad says differently. My dad's bigger than your dad. You know, it's, it's that thing where we know on the inside whose we are and we operate out of it. So it says that Jesus says these people will stand before him one day and say, when did we ever? When did we ever see you naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and bring you a drink? Meaning it was such second nature to them, they weren't doing it for brownie points. It was just who they were. Do you understand? It was so second nature. It's not like, oh, yeah, God expects me to. No, it was so second nature to them to be the sons and daughters of God that it just leaked out. And so when they stood before God and said, well, when did we ever? He's like, every time you did that. Every time you did that, you were ministering to me. And so that's what we want to step into as a house. I believe this season of uh, flocks in the world where everything has gone on pause, I, it's just straight up. I don't believe anybody who is searching for God, uh, and there's a lot, because we all have that space that craves him. I don't believe anybody that's searching for God right now is looking for the best light show in town. I don't believe they're looking for necessarily the best sound system. Sorry, babe. Um, I, don't believe, I don't believe they're looking for the best flow of service content or the best organized. They are looking to meet with Jesus. We, it's the real deal. It's not about I want to come and become a churchianity person. I, I come and I learn the religion of, of faith, of Christ. No, I come to meet Christ. And I gather together with other believers in Christ because we're siblings and together we are the body, the ecclesia, and we get to start making declarations and decrees and changing things together. And there's a synergy that happens when the body of Christ is in movement together. We encourage one another. We spur one another on to love and good works. We instruct one another, but we are not sitting around here going, look what a great church we have. We want to be good sons and daughters of God, operating in the fullness of who he has, who he is and what he has for us. Uh, Reverend A.R. Bernard spoke at um, the Global Leadership Summit this week. Was anybody online with that? It was so good, but he's actually, yeah, our, our staff was just fine. Um, but uh, he, he's a reverend from, the, uh, from Brooklyn in New York, and he is, God's using him as a minister of reconciliation his whole life. Like he's, he's ministered to political leaders, government leaders, um, church leaders. Uh, recently in New York, there's been such a flare-up between uh, the NYPD and the mayor's office and just utter panic. Um, and so for him, he's a black man who happens to have almost 300 NYPD officers in his church. So he stepped in and began to be, build a bridge between the two. But the interesting thing about him is he was previously a Muslim, well-practicing. That was, that was his thing. And he said he used to, he used to evaluate Christians from the outside. And, and basically his opinion of them was they don't know who they are or what they believe. They're weak. That was his opinion because his environment when he was connecting with other Muslims was that we know exactly what we believe. We know exactly what we're about. But when he would talk to a Christian, he found out there was nothing below the surface. That to me is a problem and an indicator of, of what we need to step into. That to me is a, a revelation that some of us, maybe, maybe some watching online, you have stumbled onto Christianity, but we need to anchor ourselves on Christ, and there's a big difference. Big difference. And so we want to lean into that. We have, essentially, across the board, an identity crisis. Christians have an identity crisis, and so I believe God has stripped that away. One of the benefits, and I'm not a big fan of the uh, shutting down of churches, but one of the benefits of having had churches shut down around the world in this past season is it has forced us back to our roots. What is worth fighting for? What is real? And from there, we build up. And I just personally believe, you know, I know I know that uh, there are some zealots in all faiths, all religions and whatever, um, and frankly, they get stuff done. It might not be good stuff, but they get stuff done, uh, right? Um, they're the ones you hear about on the news. They're not the nominal people of faith. It's the people who are 
zealous about it. Um, I'm just going to say the people who know their God are strong and do great exploits. And I believe we're called to be full of zeal. I believe we're called to be passionate. I believe we're called to be fully alive, fully on fire, fully moving in him where we don't have a church life and a home life. We don't have a church life and a business life, a church life and a marriage. We have God as the center of every day, every hour, every minute, right? He is the reason. He's the why. He's the source. He's the goal. He's it all. And when we come into that, it's real. This morning we've got... um, I think David, are you still on there? David actually came to Christ this spring after some long contemplation. And I have been noticing that in this house. Those of you who have come to Christ in the past year, it's usually been after some long confrontation with yourself, with your past beliefs, with what you know, and you're coming and you contemplate it, you confront it, and you decide. And I'm seeing people that don't want to just be converts because it felt good in the service, but because this is the right thing. And man, stuff is happening. So anyway, why I mentioned David, he's on vacation in Greece and has not missed a uh, men's mentorship group or a Sunday service since he's been there. He's on the other side of the world. David, bless you. We got people tuning, right? I mean, we got people tuning in from everywhere when they're away to be fed. Praise God. This is the kind of stuff that God can work with. Sons and daughters who are getting a fresh revelation of who he's made us to be, who are walking it out. And so we, we know that there's this first calling. We come into that relationship with Jesus. He invites us in. We say yes. It's the revelation of, of knowing that we're called to be sons and daughters of God. But then Paul tells us that we've been invited to be stewards of the mystery. I kind of like that. Literally the other night, I, uh, poor Wayne, it was like we're, we're trying to get back on the work schedule, which means getting up in the morning and whatever, and uh, I make the mistake of doing a word study. And I mean, like in my Bible, does anybody, you like, you get into a word and then you check the concordance and the references and then you do the chain references and whatever. Well, there's no way I could sleep. I was so excited by what I just learned. And I mean, poor guy, he's like just ready to go to sleep. And I'm like, okay, you gotta hear this. This is the cool, I'm preaching to him in bed at 11.30 at night and he's so good, he's so kind to me, but like, that'll be good, babe. <laughs> you know, but what I think is so cool is that there's never an end to the mystery. It's this treasure that we get to unwrap and unfold. And it's, it's not a, yay, I came to Christ, I became a Christian. And so, yeah, I did that 20 years ago and it's working out okay, I guess. No, every day it's like better and better and better. And the, the more you dig in, I just, I feel like sometimes we're like, oh, the Bible's so boring to read. Try harder. Try harder, get a different translation. The little numbers and the letters that are in there, they actually lead you to another clue. Like anybody who likes those, like where you you follow the clues to find the mystery, that's the Bible. Like Jesus left thousands of years of clues in the Old Testament to live out in the New Testament. It's so cool. It's so interesting how God wants us to be enamored with him and to find out things about him. He could just lay it all out there. He could be like, well, here's the top 10 things you need to know about me. But no, he's like, now you have the key to the mystery. Have fun. And it is fun. And so God invites us into this place where not only do we become sons and daughters, but now we learn how to act like it. And we find out how to act like it by digging into the mystery and applying it and trying it and beginning to experience it. One of the things that I think is so cool, we've had, uh, we have not had a lot of major outreach things in the past year because we've been really worried about keeping... Uh, you know, everybody in-house taken care of. We have sewn where we can, um, but we've been doing a lot of stuff in-house. Meanwhile, like the Mom Life group, couple, I don't know, weeks ago, six, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, something like that, anyway, found out about somebody who could use a little help with food, uh, groceries, and they all just began, they were so excited to pool together what they had. Um, and, and I mean, everything from, you know, just like a carton of eggs to like, more sizable dollar figures, everything in between, and we're able to bless a whole family with groceries and just minister to them. And do you know who was the most blessed? 
The moms. The person who received it was blessed, but the people who gave were even more blessed. It's more blessed to give than receive. What kind of sense is that? It's sons and daughters sense. It's the idea that I, ooh, I get to use my, my dad's credit card. See, we had this um, on my birthday. My girls, my girls took me out for um, pedicures because that was my wish. It was like I just, I actually don't want to acknowledge that I'm getting older, but I would like to go and spend some time with my daughters. And so Wayne gives his credit card to our daughter and says, because I'm like, well, we share the same credit card account, so I can just pay. He's like, that's weird. You should not pay for your own birthday. So he gives it to Megan, and Megan's like paying for supper, and she's paying for the pedicure, and she's like, this is really fun. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dad's going to want that back at the end of the night. <laughs> but that's pretty much what this is. What does it mean to operate as sons and daughters of God? We get to use daddy's credit card and do cool stuff. Like, that's it, we get to pull from what he's given us to give to others, and that's where the joy is, the delight. And every time we do that, we're ministering to him. The, the, the father is sitting there going, wow, like, they get it. They get, and it's just this awesome privilege. This past week, we've got our, our ladies' Bible study who refused to quit for uh, summer break because they're addicted uh, to Bible study, to gathering, whatever, not only, like, Bible studies from one till three, not for them, it's one till four, whenever, and then they usually go for supper afterwards, um, is the thing. So they heard about um, uh, uh, an apartment building that's mainly seniors that are in there who have had a really hard year due to all the COVID restrictions, due to their family members not being able to gather, that kind of stuff. And so they just had this idea, what if we just bless them? And so, you know, we're just going to pool our resources and, and just do something. So this week, they put together 21 gift bags and dropped them off at this senior's apartment building, people they don't know, and just left them with this little card inside that said, um, you are loved. And it was just, it was super simple. Um, and then just all these little fun, gifty things. And the, the, the people opened them and began to go, well, who is this that gave this to us? They don't even know us. Why would they do this? Well, actually, it's a Bible study. Oh, from where? Oh, from a church. Well, why would they do this? It says that, that um, we are loved because God loves them. So even though it wasn't a deliberate, like, knock on the door, preach Jesus, the gifts made way for them, and Jesus was glorified. And here's all, all of our ladies in the ladies' Bible study just giving gifts, and guess who was the most blessed? Our Bible study, right? The, the coming together, it's because we are called to be sons and daughters and act like it. So as we begin to act like it, we have to begin to lay hold in order for us to know what it's like to operate as a son or daughter of God. We have to understand what the mystery says. Does that make sense? We have to understand God's nature, his way of doing things, what the word actually says, what the, what the scripture trail is for us. We can misread, you know, a, a clue. Anybody like seen that National Treasure show, that movie that was like, you know, they would misread clues and end up in, in, in wrong places and find out that, oh my goodness, we were totally wrong. This actually means this. Well, it's important for us as sons and daughters to go back to the source and find out what does it actually say. What that means is if you are finding Christianity difficult, you are finding like God doesn't actually work for you, you're finding faith is boring, you're finding prayer is dull, you're finding like reading your Bible is stale, it's possible you landed into some level of religion, some form of Christianity that denies his power. It's possible there might need to be a recalibration of what's going on in our heads because I'm telling you, I'm, it's not even because I'm a preacher. I like legitimately watch the news, follow the things that are happening around the world, and I sit there and yell at the screen and say, we have the answer. I, I totally believe that. I totally believe there is a God wisdom, a God solution for every problem. When you look at the story of Solomon, when, when uh, Queen of Sheba came, it was this story of what was going on in the kingdom had spread far and wide. And what were they, the stories were, even your staff is happy. 
Even your employees are happy to work in the palace. Everybody's well-dressed. Everybody's well taken care of. Well, we know that Solomon was operating in the fullness of the wisdom of God. And so when the wisdom of God is applied, there's an answer for everybody. On every layer of the spectrum, on every part of society, there's an answer. There is wisdom. So we want to lean into that. Today, I want to take you into this first part, touching the hem of his garment. And again, if you're new to the Bible, this is a story that's built right in. Uh, three of the Gospels have it, I believe. Um, and it, it, it's the story of this particular woman who grabs the bottom of Jesus' garment and is healed. But there's so much more to it than that. And it, it goes down to the understanding that she was connecting with Jesus. She was tying into what we call a messianic prophecy. In other words, the Old Testament is full of these prophetic clues so that when Jesus would show up, they could find him. It was so obvious. God like left these little breadcrumb of trails. Like, okay, when, when the Messiah comes, this is what he'll do. This is what he'll act like. This is what he'll look like. And um, some of you have heard this before, that the studies, um, a professor named Peter Stoner worked with 600 students to figure out what is the probability of even eight of the over 400 prophecies being fulfilled in any one person who had lived up to the present time. The result was one in 100 quadrillion, which is one in one with 17 zeros behind it. That's the odds that even eight of them could come together in one person. Jesus fulfilled all of them. If you think Christianity is fake, you should do a history run and find out what this, this actually looks like in, in action. And so these, these prophecies were laid out so that the people would know when Messiah come. But somehow, the, the religious got up in their own heads and they thought they knew everything about God and Jesus didn't look like what they thought he would look like. And so most of them missed him. But interestingly enough, it was the broken. It was the hurting. It was the hunger. It was the lost. It was the familyless. It was the people who had a need on the inside who saw Jesus for who he really was. I was talking to somebody about the, our church here um, over holidays. It was embarrassing, actually, because I started, they were like, how's the church going? And, um, and I started blubbering at the breakfast table. I'm like, it's so good. It's just there's so many awesome people in our church. Wayne's like, holy cow. What is Whenever, I, I'm like just overcome blubbering and I'm like looking at him to take over and start talking. But because uh, what I realize even in just trying to share it is most of us have been so epically screwed up that we are passionately saved and delirious in our pursuit of him. We, we are not a room full of perfect, wonderful people who lived a gorgeous just smooth life. We are messed up. People go, thank you, Jesus, for loving me anyway. That's the best place to start, right? I mean, honestly, if you feel like you're one of those people who I've just done it all well, I really feel like ever since I was old enough to make my own choices, I have done it. I've done good. This may not be the right church for you because <laughs> the rest of us, we're messy, we done some stuff, and so we, we have had to learn to be sons and daughters, and some of us are still learning it, because if we were to pick our own children, we wouldn't pick us, but he did, you know, if, if what, knowing what we know about us, and then knowing that God knows everything, and he still picked us, crazy, but, but we know that his word says he did and that he came and he fulfilled all these prophecies. And so we know that what we see following him, the acts and the deeds and the, the life that we see following Jesus's life, it measures up to who God really is. And even if that doesn't make sense to our normal way of thinking, it's right. And so this story with the, the woman with the, the blood She's one of the prime examples of what it looks like to begin to apply this. And so the thing is that with, with everything with God, we talked about it when we did communion, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, the things of God are always two-part. It's like an inhale and an exhale. Does that make sense? Inhale, exhale. Inhale, 
exhale. Meaning there's, a, there's an agreement that we come into. There's a partnership that we come into. It's not just a belief that we assent to. It's something that we begin to engage with. And the inhale and exhale of heaven is so profound. And so in this, uh, in this story, and t- this week and next week we'll talk about it, we see four main things that happen, and it's two sets of inhales and exhales. So it's believe, receive, acknowledge, and activate. We'll go through it slower. Believe, receive, acknowledge, and activate. So it's the inhales and the exhales. It's believe and receive. It's acknowledge and activate. There's going to be something that comes into you and something that comes out of you, something that you receive and something that is, is a product in your life. And so in this story, we see all four of these in play. And so we're going to start today with believe and receive. So you ready for this? You're like, holy cow, that was just the intro. <laughs> three weeks, people. I warned you, it's been three Sundays. With, no, it's not, it's not actually that bad. We're, we're going to go slow today. All right, so believe and receive. We're going to start with Mark's version of the story. Mark chapter 5, verse 25 and 34. And I really wish this lady had a name because I think it sucks that we're calling her the woman with the issue of blood. But nevertheless, that's what she is. So it says in verse 25 of Mark 5, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from the physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that the power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging around you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I love that this passage, it's a... It's so full of Jesus's nature. It's so interesting that he's in the middle of this huge crowd and he can notice one person. You know, that's, that's who he is, right? Each one of us. We can be in a crowd of people and feel like, oh, I mean, God's got so many other things. No, he sees you. He knows exactly what you're praying, what you're needing. And so if we could just get Mark uh, 5 there ready again, we'll probably pop back to it a few times. But number one, then we want to talk about belief. We see this story, and, and I have always heard, um, I've always heard this story told from this like really lousy position, um, like this really miserable lady. She has nothing left, and we know that. But she comes like through the crowd. She hears about Jesus. So just as a last ditch effort, she's crawling through the crowd on her hands and knees just just to touch the bottom of his garment because obviously she doesn't want anybody to see her and she's just like, she is in trouble. She just needs help. But really, it's this story of like a revelation of who Jesus is. So we want to get into that. It, It firstly says that if I, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him. Hmm, so good. She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. She had a belief. There was something in her that was a belief. Now, what's interesting to us is in our English language, you guys will hear me say this a thousand times, English sucks. It's like the inferior language of the planet, I feel like sometimes. There's no nuances, but we'll just say, yeah, I believe that could happen. And what we mean is I'm kind of mildly optimistic that probably it could happen, but I've also got a backup plan because likely it's not. When I believe something, it's subject to change, it's subject to whatever. But the real meaning of of the word that is used here, it means to be convinced, to give credence to, and to entrust one's well-being to meaning she was all in. Something had been revealed to her that she believed. 
It wasn't I hope this works. It's I know this will work. I know this is going to work. I know something's going to change if I can get in here and do this. And, and what, what are the facts about it? The facts are, according to the word, when you, when you cross-reference all the different versions of it, we know that she had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Literally, female hemorrhaging, meaning that she had been unclean for 12 years. Meaning she had been starved of human contact, of relationship, of society. She had been seen as one that everybody was afraid of because if she touched them, they would become unclean. And so everybody wanted to stay away from her. Talk about having your inferiority complex, right? And when, when everywhere you go, you have to let people know that you've got a problem. When, when she's living this identity as a broken, unclean person that could cause problems for other people, and all she does is go after every kind of solution she positively can. She, it says that she had gone to all kinds of doctors. There is actually... Um, if you do a little bit of study on it, some of the things that they made women do back in the day, kind of like the, the witch doctors or the healers of the time had their superstitions, it was horrible. Literally, she had been through hell trying to get better. It had been horrible. And it says that she just kept getting worse. Instead of getting any better, she just got worse. She just got worse. So what is it if that's the case? What is it if she's exhausted all of her resources? For 12 years, she's been aside from society. For 12 years, she's not been able to connect with anybody or anything. For 12 years, she's been that, that blight on the family. She's been a cost. She's been an expense. What makes her go one more time? It's got to be something else, right? Most of us have had a place in time where we are so desperate that it's gotta be Jesus or nothing. I don't know, I don't know what else to do. It's gotta be him. And when we have that inner unction, and some of you might even be having it today, maybe you don't know Jesus yet, or maybe you need to return to him. But that inner thing on the inside of you, it's not like a, well, here's the 10 things I could try. He's the last thing on the list. It's this thing on the inside of your spirit that goes, I actually can feel a seed of hope on that. I actually believe this could be it. I don't know, I've done everything I know to do, but I believe he could be the one. And so this woman has this epiphany. It says, Mark 25, uh, sorry, Mark 5, 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I may be made well. The word heard there means to give an audience and to understand. In other words, when she heard about Jesus, when she gave an audience to the description of what was going on, what was coming out of Jesus, she began to understand. What did she understand? He was the Messiah. Something shifted on the inside of her, and instead of yet another doctor, yet another healer, yet another you know, herbal tonic, whatever, wait a minute, I've heard... I give this an audience, I meditate on it a little bit, and I begin to understand. So basically, she had an aha moment, right? She had that like, oh my goodness, this is not the same as anything else. And interestingly enough, she says then, if I would, could touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Depending on your translation, some say if I can touch the hem, if I can touch the corner of his clothes, I shall be made well. She has this, this thing that's stirring up on her. And we always talk about this woman and she touched the bottom of his garments and we have this picture of her crawling on the ground and obviously she's getting as low as she can get so she touches the hem of his garment. Weird thing though, Mark 6:56 says, wherever he entered into villages, cities or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplace and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So it's really not about her humility so much as it's about the hem of the garment, correct? It actually is written in Matthew as well. Matthew 14, 34, and 36, uh, 34 to 36 talks about it, and it says, when the men of the place recognized him, they brought the sick that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And I think we really need to understand this is one of those like breadcrumbs to the mystery 
that is so cool because this hymn is symbolic of something. It's an indicator to something. What's very interesting about it is that the word hymn there, you can do a whole word search on it. It will take you days, and it's so fun. But Obviously, we're dealing with Greek, we're dealing with Hebrew, we're dealing with English. So there's a coming together of words, but essentially the word um, that is used for Jesus' garment, the same word that is used for what they were looking to touch, the hem of his garment, is the word uh, in Greek is uh, kanaf, and in the Hebrew it's talit, which means the extremity or the corner, the corner of his garment. You with me? You taking notes right now? Some of you are like, oh my goodness, this is twisted. Bear with me, it's so awesome. So they're not just saying, can I touch the bottom of his garment as he walks by? They're like, I want to touch the corner of his outer garment because the other word that it's translated as, and, and dozens and dozens of times, it's translated as wing. So corner, the extremity, or the wing. And it is the prophetic word from Malachi 4.2 But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Can we put that on the screen, please? Malachi 4.2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So what this means is when she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment... When these sick people, when they hear about Jesus and they understand he's coming to town, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, they want to touch the wing of his garment because the son of righteousness, the Messiah, is coming with healing in his wings. And I don't know anything about anything else, but I believe that that's the Messiah and that's his wing and I'm grabbing on. It's this revelation from heaven that unpacks the mystery. And it's not about if I touch his clothes. It's about if I touch him because he's the Messiah. It's because he's God. This woman was not crawling on the ground because she was ashamed. She was crawling on the ground because she knew he's the Messiah. And that's the promise. And I'm hanging on to the promises of God. And all I've got left is the promises of God. And I'll do whatever it takes. See, that's what a daughter knows. That's what a son knows is that I don't have to understand how it works. I just know that it works because I know my God. Now, understand, she's a woman. She wasn't educated in the same way as the men, but she knew enough to know. What's really sad is the educated ones looked at that and went, not interested. It is possible to be too smart to be free, I think, sometimes. (laughs) It is possible to be so up in trying to come up with your own solution and dig it out in the word that we miss the obvious. And this woman who had been humiliated for 12 years said, what have I got left? I got no reputation. Nobody cares anyway. I'm willing to put it all on the line to get a taste of Jesus. See, that's the kind of passion that God's calling us into. It's the hunger that he's calling us into. So she presses in. The other word that's in the mix of all the word searches is the word uh, tzitzit. It's spelled T-Z-I-T, Z-I-T in the Hebrew. And essentially, it means the tassel or the fringe. So you know on those Jewish prayer shawls that they wear, and there's the tassels on the four corners? This goes back to Exodus when Jesus, or uh, God actually instructed that um, the Israelite men were supposed to do this. And the whole thing is so cool. That would be a month-long study in itself. But essentially... All these particular threads come together and there's five double knots on the end of the tassel and there's eight threads and and everything has numeric significance and everything has some sort of a tie to it. Um, Jewish, uh, Hebrew words all have numerical significance. So basically, every time you add up the numbers for these tassels or these seat seats, it comes to 613. Interesting. Not so much until you know. Okay, so the interesting thing is that there were 613 laws that God gave the Israelites, 365 thou shalt nots, and 248 thou shalt. And so God was giving them this built-in program, and he was like saying, this is going to be a reminder to you. When you see this 613 things, this is what it takes to connect with me. This is what I'm going to need you to do. But I am here. And at the end of what he says to them at that time, it's Exodus 15, 37 to 41, but we'll just read 41. It says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. 
I am the Lord your God. So when she saw this, when she saw the corner, she saw the tassel, this is what she was reaching for. She was reaching for God. She was looking for a revelation of God. She was looking for a manifestation of God in her body. When she was reaching for that, when she said to herself, if I can just touch the hem, I can just touch the corner, she wasn't saying, then, then I can be healed and I'm only after a healing. She's saying, I'm after the Messiah and the healing is a bonus. I'm, uh, the healing is what made her search. See, some of us, our brokenness, we, Whatever's been the history of our lives, whatever brokenness we've walked through, that will be the very thing that brings us to God. But it's not meant to be the thing that identifies us. It's just the hook. It's just the place that, that brings us to seek him. And when we seek him, we don't just seek healing for the brokenness. We seek him. And the healing for the brokenness comes on the other side of it. And so she comes and she's craving Messiah. So number two then, she has to receive it says that she touched the hem. She says to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. So I've always had this picture of this dirty, bloody lady crawling on the ground, and she's just looking for a little drive-by. I can just touch the hem of his garment. No, she is, at, she is on a mission. She has an understanding, a belief on the inside of her that this is Jesus. This is God. This is the Messiah. I'm after him. And so I'm going to embarrass myself and come into the crowd. I'm going to do whatever it takes to touch him, to get, I need God. I'm not interested in religion. I'm not interested in some packaging. I'm not interested in what they say I should or shouldn't do. I want to connect with God. And so I'm just going to touch the bottom of his garment. Interesting word though here, the word that she uses is used for her touching. It means to attach oneself to, to fasten to, to set on fire. This was no little light touch. I mean, when Jesus said, who touched my clothes? She was yarding on that thing. She was, a I mean, he's, he's like walking through the crowd. Everybody's bumping him. And, and, and he's like, who touched my clothes? And the disciples are like, what do you mean everybody's touching you? He's like, no, somebody's dragging on the back of my coat. Like, so she has attached herself to him. I will not let you go. It's so reminiscent of Jacob, right? Who wrestled and said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. She was not letting go until she felt something. And she felt it. She felt the power of God engage her body and heal her brokenness, and Jesus felt it too. It wasn't wishful thinking. It was a shift that happened. So the garment, the robe, the edges, super important. What's interesting is that in the, in the uh, Middle East and the, the Near East at that time, all outer garments were important. And so it was the symbolic sign of person's you know, their identity, their place in society, their role, their financial situation. It's why it was super uh, bad when David cut off the corner of King Saul's robe. We've all wondered, like, well, he didn't do that big of a deal. No, he cut off his identity, his position with God, his placement with God. It's very interesting that um, when Elijah left and his mantle, his outer robe fell on Elisha, that presence of God landed on him. It's very interesting in the story of the prodigal son that when the son comes home, the father says, put a new robe on him. It's all connected, right? And so this is about identity. This is about receiving who God says you are. We see the significance in her pulling on this this robe, putting a draw on it, she's, she's not just out to touch him, she's out to receive something. And we're going to land on this today because I want you to meditate on it a little bit. It's so cool. Jesus had a great, 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 some long down there, grandmother named Ruth. You know the story of Ruth. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis judges Ruth. It's right in there. It's a little one, just a um, few chapters in there, but it's a story of Jesus's family line. And it's a story of this woman who did not belong in Jesus's family line. It's somebody who chose to be there, who chose to lay down her identity and pick up somebody else's. And as the story goes, she's a Moabitess. She'd married a Jewish man. And um, over the course of time, her husband died, her brother-in-law died, and her father-in-law died. So she's got a sister-in-law and a mother-in-law, and they have no way of earning income. They have no supply. They have no nothing. And so the mother-in-law decides to be bitter. She changes her name. She's like, don't even call me Naomi. Call me bitterness. 
whatever. She got a, she, she needs some counseling, but um, um, <laughs> for another sermon. <laughs> but Ruth maintains this sweet spirit, and she says, no, I've, I've married into this family. I, I want to be with you. And she says those famous words that she says, your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And so she shifts and leaves everything that she's known to become somebody new. And so as they come back to um, where their family had come from, um, because there was a famine and it had ended, and so they come back, and here they are just trying to get along. And so Ruth is out there. Her mother-in-law says, well, there's this um, relative of ours, distant relative. His name is Boaz. Um, and if you go out into his fields, just ask if you can go and you know, pick up the leftover grain that's between what the other harvesters leave behind, and that should be enough for us to get on with. And so she does that for a while and has a few encounters, um, but basically she's just feeding her family. She's just gathering grain. But the time comes when Ruth says, I feel like there's more that needs to happen. What should I do? And her mother-in-law gives her this super weird instruction, and she says, well, the harvesters are all gathering to party, and they're having basically Thanksgiving. Um, it's the end of the harvest, so they're all going to be out celebrating tonight. So I want you to go into the place where the grain is and where the, the men are going to lay down to sleep at the end of the night. And I want you to go down to the foot of his bed and uh, lay down there and ask him to put his robe over you. It's really weird. We don't recommend that anymore. It's totally culturally significant. This is not dating advice. But... <laughs> In the day, it says, and so he laid down, and as he rolled over, he realized that there was this woman at the bottom of his feet, and, uh, and he was like startled awake, and he's like, who are you? What's going on? And it says in Ruth 3.9, he answered and said, who are you? So she answered and said, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Interestingly, to us, it's like, oh, take me under your wing and protect me. That'd be so nice. It's like the goose and the goslings. And... No, she's, she's basically breaking all the cultural stuff, and she's asking him to marry her. Would you decide to marry me? She's saying, would you put the edge of your garment, the wing, it's the same word as this woman touched on Jesus. It's the same word that the, the sick people grabbed in the marketplace. It's the same word as the, the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. It's that same thing. It's the extension of who you are and who you are in relationship with God. Would you extend that over me? Would you marry me? And so when we look at this in the New Testament, it suddenly becomes this new thing because essentially she's saying, can the two of us become one? This woman who pressed through to grab the wing of Jesus' coat, the wing of his garment, she was saying the same thing. Can we, can we become connected? I am ready to give up who I am to have all of who you are. And he turns around and he says to her, daughter, daughter. In other words, family relationship. Something has happened that has changed who she is. For the last 12 years, who are you? I'm the woman who bleeds all the time. I'm unclean. You should probably not come near me. I thought you had money. Spent it all. Quack doctors. Freaky online shopping. I got nothing left. Nothing has worked at all. Not, no, I have tried the herbal stuff. No, not even that. You know, whatever, she's tried, she's, this has been her identity. And something is about to shift in this moment when she attaches herself to his identity. And in the same way that Boaz decides to redeem Ruth and make her a mother of many nations, make her part of Jesus' family line, bring her into the fulfillment of her destiny. In the same way, this woman grabs onto the wing, the tassel, the corner of Jesus' garment, and something that was is no more, and she is about to be somebody new. And I'm telling you, the revelation today that we need to understand is that as sons and daughters, what was is gone, leave it there. Sons and 
and daughters of God have to grab on, not wishing and hoping, I kind of believe maybe God could be real, but I am deciding to answer this revelation on the inside of my heart. I'm going to believe and receive. I am going to do whatever it takes. It might cost me friends. It might cost me family. It might cost me some tension for a little while. I might feel like a weirdo, but seriously, it's not going to be as bad as crawling on the ground through a crowd to grab a guy's coat. It's not going to be that bad. Jesus has made this opportunity for us to step into the fullness with him. And some of us started with this very beginning. We've said yes to Jesus. We've said, yes, I'll, I'll be your, your, your child. Yes, I have um, believed that you died on the cross. You rose again. I believe that you forgive my sins, and that's good for me. That is like getting your wedding ring at the altar and then going home to live by yourself. Something changes and now there's a marriage. Something changes and now there's a covenant. Something changes and now there's a relationship. And when people want to remind you that you were the bloody lady crawling in the ground, you now remind them that Jesus calls you daughter. Jesus calls you son. That's not the name that I answer to anymore. I am not back there anymore. I have touched the hem of his garment. I have affixed myself to him. And there is a fire on the inside of me that nobody else is putting out. And I will do whatever it takes. I don't care who's looking. I'm going after the fire. So this morning, whew, that's only part one. I'm going to have Mel come, and she's just going to lead us in a song this morning. I know the kids are done at 12. However, um, you know, we don't have a rush to get out of here. We are coming back at 6 tonight, but I just believe God's inviting us to that place where maybe on a fresh level or maybe for the first time, we need to come and we need to grab that garment. We need to grab, we need to come in and we need to say on the inside, God, I believe fully that you are who you say you are. Jesus, I believe you did what you said you did. I believe that as I read these words, even though they seem mystical and strange, the mystery is worth diving into. And I am no longer willing to live by my old identity. Some of us, maybe 80% of the time we're living in the new, but that 20% knocks us off our feet all the time. I picture this woman in the crowd. She's got Jesus on one side and she's kicking off others on the back side. You know? Get off me. I got the garment. I'm hanging on. You know? Some of us need to get a little more aggressive with our faith. Anybody else in the room besides me? Come on. Let's stand together this morning. If that's you, if you're feeling like there's some aggression... There's a commitment. There's a next level that you want to go after, a next level of who he wants to be in you. I want to invite you as we sing this this morning, come on to the front. This is just totally about you. We're going to see where the Lord wants to take it today. But I believe passionate sons and daughters of God will know their God and do great exploits. God's moving us into the more of heaven. He's moving us into the fullness of what it means to live in him and with him. He's letting us have daddy's credit card to be a blessing, spiritually speaking, right? So Lord, today, <laughs> Lord, today we come and we press in. We press through the crowd. We press through the noise. We press through the pressure. We press through the disappointment, the loss, the what's behind us. And we press in to grab on to who you are. Lord, we're asking this morning, like the woman who grabbed on, and, and Lord, she, she touched you by clinging onto you, and the word says it, it, was, it was like a fire that ignites on the inside. God, we're asking for that fire to ignite. Fresh, more, bigger, whatever it takes, God, we just run towards you today. We are willing to press in. We don't want to be nominal Christians. We don't want to be religious people. We want to be passionate followers of Jesus Christ. We can sift through the, the, the list that you've given us, God, the trail that you've left us, and we can see, Jesus, you are real. You are real. So, God, today I just pray for that next level revelation to take root in our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for the fire today. 
ha, the fire today that belongs to the sons and daughters of God. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So I just leave you to respond to this today. You're free to go if you'd like, but I'd spend a few minutes with him. Thanks again for listening to this message from Victory Church Grand Prairie. You can stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by using at VictoryChurchGP. If you have any questions, would like to access our online resources, or would like to sow into this ministry, you can visit us at www.VictoryGP.com. You can also text to give. Just text 587-207-4387 and follow the prompting. Thanks again for joining us at Victory GP. Reach. Teach. Mobilize.